Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Okay, well, let's get this started. So, Renaud, I'm saying the first name correctly, right? Yes. Okay. So great to meet you. Um, thank you so much for coming in. And so what you do is, a, you know, it's a little outside of the scope of what I teach, but it's just so beautiful. And I wanted to really get to know a little bit about both this UX designer side of things, which one of my students just went and got a job as a, not UX, but UI designer. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not meaning to conflate those. And then get a sense of this gate, build a game in three days. Because, you know, you're talking to a bunch of people that are all 3D. So we don't build anything in three days. <laughs> it's, it's like, that's when we get the high res done. But you're building these things in three days. And so I really want to just get to know a little bit about what you do, how you operate, you know, how you make your money, so to speak, like what you do for a career and all that stuff. So why don't we start with what do you do today? What's your day job? Okay. Right now, I'm working at, at Ubisoft Montreal as, mm-hmm. uh, as a, I lead a prototype team there on an unannounced project. Okay. Basically, my, my day today is creating parts of a game, uh, uh-huh. focused features, and making sure they are fun, that they are doable, that they match with our objectives and so on, and having people test that so we get actual data and can take decisions based on that. Are these games that eventually become larger in scale and are done in 3D, or are these done in 2D? Uh, I can't really talk about this project, but uh, in general, these are large projects and like big games. Ubisoft doesn't really do small games. Uh, Yes, right. (laughs) So what's the purpose of prototyping? I know you can't talk about that specific game, but what I'm getting at here is... A lot of times when I'm talking to people about game arts, it's like, I'm going to be a character sculptor because they see it on ArtStation. They see somebody out there. But games is an entire universe beyond, you know, just concept artists, character artists, right? There's there's a lot more involved in this. And that, that's what I wanted to kind of unpack. So what's the purpose of prototyping? So I come from web and mobile apps, you know, like serious stuff before that. And when I used to work in that field, we would work on, on large projects, like large stuff. And I've always had this idea that instead of going full on production, uh, it was much better to just sort of create something small, see if it works, even test that with actual people. And that's basically the same idea for games. So creating a game, as you said, it's a massive enterprise. Just the 3D aspect of things is extremely time consuming. Uh, but that the same for pretty much all fields, you know, like networking, programming, all that takes a long time. So instead of going into a two years, maybe three years production, sometimes much more than that, uh, what I like to do is create a tiny, not even a vertical slice, but really something extremely simple, focused on uh, usually the most used features of the game. So let's say you you want to do Mario or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just create a prototype where you have a cube that jumps. And if jumping is fun on its own, then, of course, if you improve the graphics, if you add more content, if you create all the mechanics that make a game, then it's probably going to be fun. But your core mechanics have to be super fun. And 
taking that at scale. The idea is to do that for the main feature, but also do that for mm-hmm. the features of a game. Maybe uh, you know that's the options menu open. Uh, you could do that in a small prototype and have fun and iterate and try many solutions to that specific problem and have them tested. And that's that's the idea of prototyping. One of the things I remember reading about a, a while ago, there was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they went to a game studio to have them produce a game. And instead of them building out this brand new game and doing all this stuff, they just took this project that they'd been doing internally, which is just like a, a racing game. And it was fun to play as a racing game and then turned it into that whole cart scene in the mines where you know they're mm-hmm. in. And it was a huge hit, huge success. And the real big takeaway there was that games is, we talk a lot about story, but the underlying part of this is, I think, what you're calling core mechanics, the gameplay of it. Like, is it fun? Exactly. Yeah. So what what are the elements of fun, I guess, is where I'm going with this. Fun is really what I focus on. I also do prototypes that are focused on art, you know, like uh, trying to find the right shaders, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But mostly I'm focused on core gameplay and action, you know, like uh, jumping, shooting, dashing, hitting something, uh, that kind of stuff. And I think something, my definition of fun would be something that is enjoyable, repeatable, and rewarding. Mm -hmm. So in any game where you have a jump, let's say, or any game where you shoot a a gun. So shooting a gun, basically you press the trigger, you press a button, you you do something, and the bullet comes out of your gun, probably your, your character's gun. And it mm-hmm. goes forward, does something, uh, probably hits an enemy or something. But you can make that really enjoyable and rewarding by adding post-processing effects, maybe by adding screen shakes, by adding freeze frames, by adding tons of stuff, what is usually called micro-interactions. So it's the idea that all these tiny things, by adding, adding details to that, you make it fun. A good example of that outside of games would be when you like something on Twitter. They could just have said, okay, you liked it, you know, and just have a message, some sort of feedback to the user that says the action worked. But instead you have this tiny heart and it sort of explodes into bubbles. And that makes it fun. That makes it surprising. And you want to do that again. And of course, that's the uh, business model, you know, like engagement. So the more people like stuff on Twitter, the more ads they will see and the more money they make. So everybody's happy. And and in games, that's exactly the same thing. You want to make core actions, the actions that you want your user, your, your player to do a lot. You want to make them extremely enjoyable. And so that's all that sum of tiny details that most people won't be able to pinpoint really. They will be like, oh, uh, you know, throwing an axe in God of War is fun. Right. Because when you shoot, when you throw the axe, there's, there are tons of tiny details and there's haptic feedback on the controller, a screen shake, the, the camera moves a bit. It's very cleverly done. And in the end, people would just say it's fun, but actually it's a sum of tiny, tiny details. Mm. That's making me think of this video of yours here on the on the screen, the, the first five months of prototyping. I'm watching this thing and I'm like, oh my God, that looks fun. <laughs> and then, and, and it, it just looks fun. I mean, it doesn't even look good or bad. Uh, that's, <laughs> usually, uh, the, the idea... What, what I do when I do prototypes, I try to make them decent, like not program art, you know, not elite scenes and stuff like that. So it's, it's, uh, there's some sort of art direction to it, but I try to keep it separate. 
the game could be about uh, the, the one with the cubes going at you. Uh, it could be zombies, it could be monsters, it could be anything. Uh, right. It's completely separate from the fantasy of the game. And if it works with cubes, just random cubes jumping at you, then it works. You know, like it's probably going to work with awesome monsters, animated, full texture, all that stuff. So walk me through that a, a little bit in terms of what are the things you said? There's haptic experience and stuff like that. And then I kind of want to unpack how you got there because I don't think there's like a degree program for what you do. Not really. There should be. Yeah. Um, so walk um, me through first. The, before, it's yeah, really something that I think is lacking in, yeah. in my experience and my very short experience in, in the world of video games. I've been working there for two years now. Before that, I was in completely uh, different fields. But um, at least not directly working for studios. But it's not a job title. You're not a juice expert. You're not a micro-interactions expert or director or something. You, at best, would be UX, I say, but um, most UX people will still focus on menus and stuff like that. And then you have gameplay, uh, game designers, but they will focus on the rules. But So nobody really focuses on the juice itself. And I guess the way I came to it was that I was working on websites and after that on mobile apps. And one of the keys in mobile, uh, when you're doing apps or newspapers or for any kind of users, really, usually you want eventually to make money. So whether you're filling a shopping cart or whether you are looking at articles or liking stuff, you want people to engage and to like these interactions. And the way I found to that I could improve on that was making every button, not every button, but the buttons I wanted the user to use regularly, uh, make them some sort of game. And, you know, instead of just button changes color or something, you, you make it so that it's very enjoyable. And this has a limit when you do serious apps. You know, you, you can't have, uh, every time you like an article on a newspaper's app, you can't have the screen explode in fireworks. For some reason, people don't like that. But in games, you can. In games, you can. And the idea was that I started focusing on that. I started uh, seeing the value in that because I realized that what comes naturally to me, I get these things quickly. You know, I, I, every time I see a new uh, post-processing effect, some way to, to deform the screen, for example, I'm like, okay, this, this can be used as feedback to an action uh, made by the player. And I started creating libraries that allow me to, to do that more quickly. And I got results. I got data that showed that even as prototypes, if you add these sort of visual feedbacks or haptic feedbacks or sound, you get much better results. And so I, I started really focusing on that and trying to find everyday new, new ways, new tools for the toolbox. And that's how I, I got there. I guess the, the whole idea is that I used to do UX design. So the idea of uh, the whole user experience and uh, trying one of the core pillars, at least the one I, I focused on was the idea of every action should have a back. And it's the idea that if you play a game or if you use an app or if you whatever, you have to understand the rules. So if you click on a mouse, usually you hear a tiny sound. And that sound tells you, okay, you clicked. And there's also the movement of the physical part of the mouse that clicks. So all that tells you, okay, your action had consequences. And if, when building a product, if you make sure that the user understands that 
each of the actions has an effect, uh, chances are your product is going to be at least usable. I'm not saying it's going to be good, but at least this will be covered. And a lot of products actually don't do that or forget places where they could have improved on that. So that was how I was doing apps. That's now how I am doing games. You mentioned micro interactions, and you've basically spent time building a library like Screen Shake and different things like that. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. So um, I would say that now I have something like 40 of them at the ready. This goes from visual stuff like yeah, screen shakes, uh, flashes on screen, but can also be color grading, depth of field, that kind of stuff. So really a lot of post-processing, but I can also have an object flicker or affect its material in many ways. I can have an object simply shake or bounce or change its scale. Or then there are, there's also a lot of stuff that can be done on sounds, even modifying an actual sound to get a different Let's say you, you play on the on the pitch of the sound, so every time you touch a ball in a game, it makes tiny different sounds, so you want to do that again. There's a lot of randomness involved, but it can also be haptic feedback. That's one, one of my passions. Um, like it's the idea that every time you, for example, on Twitter or Facebook, when you refresh your feed, you get a tiny, tiny vibration. It's not like uh, an alarm vibration. It's, it's extremely low. But usually you'll feel it and you'll be like, okay, so I touched this perfectly flat glass surface and it had an action. And it's not even a sound, it's not even visual, it's just a vibration in your hand. And yeah, all that toolbox can be used. And when you use that in conjunction with one another, with proper timing, then you get something that is like a toy and it's fun to play with. When you're prototyping, especially I'm looking at these scenes or like even urban planning, when you're prototyping and you're building these, you know, outside of the time that it takes to make these happen, what's your primary focus, like in terms of a job? So if somebody was going to do this for a job and, and you sit down and you're um, building this, are you building like, does a director come in here with an idea or is your job just literally like, you know, president of fun? So when I do like urban planning, that's a game jam game. So I did it on my own. So yeah. in this case, I'm president of everything. But... Uh, <laughs> At, at work um, or when working for studios, usually yeah. uh, the idea comes from someone else or, or many people even. I used to work at Gameloft Montreal before Ubisoft and uh, there I would work for many teams while at Ubisoft I'm focused on one game. Mm -hmm. so, but in, in both situations, uh, the idea comes from different people. So they have an idea for a giant game and uh, they say, I simplify, but basically they say, hey, we want to make sure this game is fun. And can you do a prototype to to see how it goes? Because for now, I have this idea in my head. It looks good on paper. It looks promising. You know, people are interested in pirates and dropships or whatever. And we want to make sure it works. So usually what I do is I, I talk to that person, that person that has vision, and try to scope things down because... Of course, you know, in the final game, there will be dragons, they will, there will be tons of soldiers and stuff and missions and quests and, and whatnot. But what is the core pillar or the core pillars of the game? And that can be fighting, that can be jumping, that can be running. So we try to see how much we can remove and we try to get to the, the very core value of the game. And then we make prototypes around that. Got it. 
Okay, so and around specific scenes or specific actions that you know are going to happen, because I'm imagining, you know, I guess the other part of this is the whole production of games is still kind of an unknown. Like everybody knows film, you have a director, you have uh, writers, you got actors, you got a cinematographer, there's an award ceremony for them. And so we know that these are all the elements, but games is still unknown in terms of how it's, there's a game director, but what does a game director do? You know, would the average person be able to say, you know, I'm not entirely confident. So are you working with directors? Or are you working with producers, executives? Usually it will be the, it will be the game director. So the game director is someone that is usually at the core of the idea. Like it was their idea to do a game about dragons. And they would be in charge of holding that vision, making sure the game stays on track and finding the right people, discussing with probably stakeholders. So that, that would be a game director. And sometimes they do just that. Sometimes they do also art direction, you know, depending on, on the, size, the size of the, the teams and so on. I rarely talk to XX, uh, not, not directly. I try to get only one person, ideally the game director, and then I work with a very small team for four people max, usually with profiles like uh, tech artists, uh, VFX artists, people that are able to do a game on their own because they know how to code, they know how to create basic models, stuff like that. So people that have many skills. Got it. And is this, so I'm going to start with this question and then I want to get into a little bit of the how if you're open to that in terms of platforms. But is this a job that that's out there, somebody that the industry is in need of right now? I think it's in need of it. <laughs> I don't think it knows it. Okay, most it. of the time, most of the time, people don't even do prototypes, or they think they do prototypes. But what they uh-huh. do is production for two years. And what I do is really on a different scale in terms of time, in terms of scope, which means it's much smaller, but you get much more. And that's not something I invented. That's how most apps that you see on the app store are created in right. some. Uh, you, you create an MVP, minimum viable product, and yep. you get out extremely fast and, and test it in the hands of users. That's not really I've seen much in the studio side. That makes sense, but I'm sure that's coming. I hope it is. I think it is. So talk to me about the how, because you said you come from a background in coding, but you're also an artist. Yeah, so I, I studied computing. Uh, like 15 years ago mm-hmm. and that I started I used to draw as a kid but like really badly and uh, at some point during my studies I bought a Wacom tablet or not even a Wacom really it was a crappy one and I started drawing started posting stuff on forums because back in the day we didn't have social networks and I was really really bad at it but I had the chance of having people criticize my stuff. I was on a, a forum called the CFSL in France, and huge like people that are really extremely famous in the industry now, working on films, working on video games. I used to post on that forum, and it was only like 200 or 300 people. So you would get advice from the best. So I tried and tried and tried again, trying to sort of impress these people, and that's how I I built my illustrator career. And on the side, I was doing programming and doing web design, really app design, interface design, and coding. And the idea was that being able to code, even when working on website or apps, being able to code, being able to do stuff in Photoshop, 
that that gave me a lot of leeway to try new things. And I think it opens a lot of opportunities when you don't have to rely on either an artist or either a programmer to get something out. So if you have a vision for a product, a vision for a game, a vision for anything, if you're able to do it all on your own at in a you know at a satisfying level, then it opens a lot of doors because you don't you don't rely on anyone. And when working, being able to on your own show a vision of what you have and an interactive one ideally, that's usually something that works for you. What kind of development tools do you use? Do you go straight into Unity? Because you also mentioned somebody to do what you do, that there's an aspect of code to this. And now I, I think, uh, was it Snapchat? I think Snapchat just bought a, uh, a game development platform. I mean, you know, a simple one. A playground, I think, if I remember right. So what tools do you use? I, I do 90% of my stuff in Unity. Okay. Uh, back in the day, I was using Flash and Something like five or six years ago, I, I decided to get back into games, or at least just for myself and doing game jobs. So I started with Unity because it was starting to, to get traction at the time. Turns out it's a really wonderful tool, and you can do a lot in it, even if you don't know how to code. So I'm fortunate enough to know how to code, so I don't have to rely on visual tools and stuff. But even if you don't know how to code, you can have a lot of fun with Unity. And it's, it's very much self-contained. So you have uh, support for animations, for shaders, for everything you want to do in, in terms of code. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful tool and extremely accessible, much more than anything that came before. So I, I use Unity for pretty much everything. I do my 2D art in Photoshop, my 3D art in Blender, music I do on the iPad mostly using apps like Figure and stuff like that. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. You do the music yourself? Yeah. I wouldn't call it music, but it's sounds that are okay. When I, when I do uh, sound design, it's mostly with apps, you know, very simple apps that you, you sort of press buttons, but it always works somehow because they, they stick to a reason and everything. So right. You can't really go wrong with that. Got it. Is there one that you use? You said Figure? Yeah. Uh, it's made by the, the proper the heads people, who I think okay. was in the 90s. And uh, it's, it's really fun. It's, it's basically a game, and you just move buttons and do stuff, and it always sounds really good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I think my um, there was a game like that my kids were playing with the other day in the back of the car, and I was like, my son's a DJ. What the yeah. This is good. All right, so... In terms of the output, what because what I'm trying to do is get is you know a little bit of a granular perspective. So if we take a look at not the baker, I liked the smallest dungeon. So when you're creating these in terms of the smallest dungeon, are, are the characters in 3D, 2D? These are in 2D. I think the scene okay. is in 3D, but they are technically in 2D. I'm using Spine to animate them, so uh, they they are like drawn in Photoshop on separate layers. Uh, so, like, uh, um, the, let's take the, the penguin here. Uh, he will have a body, two arms, and I think the legs are two parts each. And then I bring that to Spine, which is an animation tool, very puppet-like. And I, I read that and animate the bones, do walk cycles and stuff like that. And the really cool thing with Spine is that you can replace one skin with another. So, actually, all the enemies... 
and maybe even the main characters I can remember that I think pretty much all the characters in the game are using the same skeleton and the same animations so I only did like one walk cycle one one idol one attack mm -hmm. and I can just replace the like PNGs and I get the new character and the cool thing with, with Spine and Unity is that you get a runtime so an, an API that you can use to tweak the bones at runtime so you can randomly say, hey, now you get a big head, or you're moving twice as fast, or you randomly uh, assemble a character mixing arms and legs and bodies from different ones. So you, you get a lot of content out of minimum efforts, which is something I'm always after, because I try to work in very short time frames. So if I can find the tool that allows me to generate tons of stuff, then of course it's, uh, it's a win. That's great to hear. And hearing the plug, because I know Unity is one of those, it's very plug-in and asset dependent, you know? Yes. So that's great to hear the actual ones. Let me ask this, especially the work that you do, I think I'm, be, I'm really interested in your question to this, but what is art in your perspective? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. One I, I don't ask myself very often. I think what I do is, I, I never considered myself an artist, I do applied art, you know, like production art. I never do art just for the sake of it. Or, or rarely, there's always a motive, whether it's uh, it's going to be, you know, an illustration for the cover of a, an album or comics or video games or anything. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have an answer to that. I would say what I do is not art, really. Uh, not, not in the, the sense that usually people think about I do like uh, dressing on top of products to make people like them. Got it. And it sounds like gameplay and, and fun is like, that's just at the core of the whole experience for you. Yes. I really believe that a game, but I think that I was doing that even when I was doing illustrations. I never reached the point where I would consider myself extremely good at drawing or proportions or stuff like that. But I compensate by trying to have fun, you know, and offering something that hasn't been done before, seen before, mm -hmm. like tiny jokes, you know, or something unique or a unique spin to something you've already seen, like the Game of Thrones series or stuff like that. And trying to tell the story even with one image that doesn't move, doesn't have words. I think that's what I, that's what I was trying to do. And I think it was already fun or trying to be, and games, I, I could play games that don't even have visuals if they are fun. I don't think I would play a game that is just, uh, I mean, I've tried many beautiful games that are extremely boring because there's no fun part. And mm -hmm. personally, I think if your game is fun, chances are it's going to work. If it's just beautiful, maybe it will work, maybe not. You know, game isn't known necessarily as for story. You know, that's cinema. Cinema is known for story. But how important is story to this? Because and because that's the thing that I've been hearing a lot is that story is really kind of the last part of it. I, is that accurate or no? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. I mean, in, in my experience as a player, I've never been really moved by a story in a game like I have in movies. You know, I, I, I could name tons of movies that have changed my visions of things or have, have me experience something unique, you know, in books and TV series. But games, the story is okay at best. There, there must be some, 
you know, braid and stuff like that would be exceptions to the rules. But most of the time, I'm like, okay, the story is all right, and it would be fine for a TV movie in the 90s. I think it's something that could be improved. I don't really know why it's uh, always so disappointing to me. I guess that's because people focus, like uh, studios, focus on the visuals first, focus on creating huge worlds, and rarely on, on stories. I mean, there are exceptions, like uh, Witcher 3, you know, stuff like that is, I think, brilliant. But most of the time, I, I recently played the last Mortal Kombat game, and yeah. That's not the one where you would expect a, a brilliant story. And I think they know it, that the story is fun and treated as like a Z movie. But, you know, why not come up with a, an actual good story? And in, in my experience, uh, it's all, it, it really always comes last or there isn't enough effort put into it or all the other departments, uh, art programming and stuff, treat it as some sort of bonus. So it, it's just on the side and not at the core of the experience. So I'm wondering now, because a lot of my uh, my students, you know, one of the big things we teach is you, you have to, you want to include a story in what you do, you know, partly because, you know, if we're doing 3D, you've got to do the wear and tear. So you have to have some story to know how a cabinet's used so that you can have an, a, you know, an authentic experience to it. But stepping outside of that entirely, what kind of tips or advice can you have for somebody if, if they want to produce a game quick and they just want to get in and they want to start to have some experience with what you do, the gameplay, the juice? I think you called it the juice, right? Yeah. I think that the first advice would be to try and keep your scope extremely small. Creating a game is long, takes tons of time. The more features you, you add to the game, the more bugs you're going to create. That's like whatever your, your level, that's a general rule. So keep things small. And then to do that, to decide on, on that scope, the, the best way I think to prioritize it is to, is to say, okay, in my game, players will walk, uh, they're going to jump and they're going to shoot that stuff. Then uh, they are going to open doors and crawl through stuff and so on. But you prioritize by the order of or the, the frequency the action is being done. Okay. And you walk, uh, in that order, you walk, jump and shoot. Then you focus on making the walk the walking work and then you do the jumping and then you do the shooting and you stop there. Like that's way enough. The rest is secondary and if you manage to nail that, chances are you won't have any issue with opening the door. And try to keep it as small as possible. Like jumping and walking and shooting doesn't require an animation. In the end it will, but it should be fun with a cube or a triangle or something. And if you manage to make it work with a cube, then replacing that with an actual textured character should be working as well. So try to keep it low-fi as possible while maintaining a certain level of understanding for the play. Like if you have some sort of vehicle that is like a car uh, racing in the desert, you want probably to have some sort of direction. So maybe instead of a cube, you go with an arrow or you go with something like that. And it's the idea that this very minimum, minimal product should be able to work. And then I guess it's about picking the right tools for the job. I would recommend Unity, but really whatever works, it, it could be paper and, and pen, it could be game maker, it doesn't really matter. I would, I'm more interested in the result than the tools. Got it. 
keep it small, keep the scope small, keep the keep it as low fi as possible. The scope is something I want to kind of unpack. But the other thing is, as you said, the tools. And mm-hmm. since Unity has a lot of plugins and and what I'm seeing with your work, especially, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, and it's there for me, they're aesthetically beautiful. Like it's just awesome to see. Yeah. So, you know, are you using plugins? I think it's Amplify was one uh, for the shading or what are you using to kind of develop these looks and, and whatnot? So most of the time, I tend to stick to very basic tools. I rarely go into shaders, first of all, because it's complex. And I'm really bad at it. And second of all, because it, takes, it, takes, it, just, it just takes too much time. And most of the time, unless you've got something really specific, like you need a notion surface, you know, you need uh, waves and stuff like that, or you need flames and it's core to your gameplay, I don't do that. I would just, if, if the game is on water, I would go with a cube, a blue one, and I set its transparency to 50% or something. And now it's water. Someone else later will come up with an actual water shader. So what I usually use is something called Cinemachine, which is um, it was an external plugin and it got bought by Unity. So now it's sort of built in uh, in the package manager mm-hmm. and handles cameras. And once you are used to using that thing, you don't ever call the camera controller ever again. It can, it can do amazing things, blend between cameras, it's extremely easy to use and extremely powerful. So that's something I use in all of my projects, and it has the benefit of being free now. So that's that's a plus. And I also use uh, Unity's post-processing stack. So that's a, a bunch of post-processing effects like uh, uh, color grading, depth of field, blur, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And these, when used properly, vignettes, things like that, you get something that looks good instantly. And as soon as you manage to put a few lights in your scene, if, even if it's a plane and a few cubes and uh, a ball with lights, a camera that slightly uh, shades, you know, because there's a noise on it because it looks like it's being handheld. And post-processing, you've got something working. All right. So Cinema Machine, are there any other plugins that you kind of recommend that are kind of essential? Um, the one I use a lot at work is called Odin. Uh, it's something that handles serialization and stuff. So if you're a programmer, I would recommend using that. If you're not, you're going to waste your money because you're not going to understand what it's for. <laughs> there is one that I never use myself. I, I prefer coding like with actual letters and, and, and typing the code. But uh, there's something called Bolt, uh, and it's a visual tool. So if you don't know programming, it's, um, it's I think, extremely useful because it's going to be about assembling visual blocks of code and, and yeah. linking them together. And I've seen people with zero knowledge of programming get amazing results with that and very quickly. I think, in my opinion, there's a limit to what you can do with that because it just becomes too big and I, I myself can't really comprehend giant sets of nodes. But um, if it works for you, then you, know, you should go for it. Got it. And yeah. the last... The last I would mention is not even part of Unity, but it's uh, Houdini. Uh, that, that's completely separate software, but uh, same sort of thing, same logic where you assemble stuff with, with nodes, and it's so powerful and it can do amazing things in very short time. Houdini is a part of your package, part of your pipeline. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much. We use that for generating 
a lot of stuff in a very short time without anyone knowing 3D modeling. So um, you can use it for generating levels. I've generated racetracks, castles, mazes. You can do tons of stuff with it. The industry is changing so much. So there's, I, I'd lo- I got a question for you along those lines. Then I want to hear a little bit about what's the hardest part of what you do. But before we do that, the, the industry is changing so much and there's so many tools that are developing and now prototyping, which is, you know, I think uh, you're telling me is, is what you do is still relatively new in this industry. But along those lines, it brings up things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. And, you know, I was looking uh, recently, I saw Facebook's Codex avatars. I don't know if you've seen the the article on that. It's long since papers, but uh, it's all artificial intelligence recreating the uh, somebody's face from a bunch of videos and then they get a soundtrack and they just recreate it it's pretty it's pretty awesome it is what's happening yeah Yeah. so how does this impact artists because here i'm looking at this tool right here you guys are an environment artists and somebody basically wrote an environment artist out of a job for a little bit and did it in in an awesome way how do you see this stuff impacting the art side of it i i I'm mellow. I'm dramatizing the whole artist, art versus artist versus machine thing. But how do you see this impacting arts and the art side of it? I think it's going to have a dramatic impact. I think it already has, and it's going to be more visible and more. I wouldn't say damaging because I think people would just do something else instead. But um, it is going to have an impact. And anybody that thinks that because they are doing something creative. A machine can do it. I think they are wrong. Just because a machine doesn't really create or things like that. It just tries everything. But it, it does it so fast that it's doing it. Even if it's random, at some point it's going to be better than you just by chance. I did a lot of work last year with uh, Unity and AI. I trained uh, cars to do races. I trained orcs to walk. I did random stuff like that, and it is extremely powerful. I know nothing about AI, and it's be, it's come to a point where you get so much power and it's so accessible that someone with an actual knowledge and uh, not doing just random stuff like I am doing, but you, you can do crazy stuff right now. I believe in 10 years, you'll do, uh, the, the stuff will do itself, you know, like, for example, for art, uh, already in, in studios, you'll see people that come up with an idea for a game and instead of just saying, hey, we've got this amazing digital painter or concept artist and let's uh, have that person do something really cool. Now you have, you ask many people to do many different styles and you test them on Facebook using ads and so on and you get data and you take your decisions based on that. So maybe you wanted to see if a very dark cyber thing looking style for your game was okay, but it turns out people prefer cowboys, so you go with the cowboys. And for now, uh, all this test art is being done by humans, but it could very well be automated. And with the infrastructure that is already in place, it's quite doable to create tons of options and A-B test them like in real time and see if it works or not. I I did that on games, even like uh, I did that for level design. So you have, using Houdini, actually, uh, you just generate random mazes. You have people play them. So you, you, as long as you have maybe thousands of players, you just randomly serve all these levels. We'll have a bad experience at first, but at the end, you, you ask the players, hey, did you like the level? They put a 
rating on that. And you sort of sort all your levels out on their own. And the machine can do that completely. So you just generate tons of options, see if people like that, and it sort of fixes itself. It's already being done on, on YouTube videos, for example. You have these weird companies. I, I've never really understood the, the model. I guess it's just about views and ads. And then they generate videos for kids. So it's like cartoons and weird sounds. And yeah. they just generate so much of it that in the end it sort of, sort of works. And of course it's ugly right now, but I mean, every week there's a new AI experiment that draws for you, that does colors for you, that, you know, does new stuff. And yeah, you were talking about uh, the, the videos, you look at the deep facing. Yeah, you look at the, the Marvel movies, you know, where you can sort of resuscitate actors now or at least make them way younger. All that is coming in the hands of pretty much everyone in the next 10 years. And just just playing, last night I was with my, my kid, I was playing with uh, uh, Snapchat filters where you can just turn into a, a dog or something. And uh, if you look at the, the latest Apple emojis that you sort of control with your face, you've got something that is on par with kid shows that I see on Netflix. So all that is becoming extremely accessible, won't require as much knowledge, and I think it affects every creative job. When I worked at Pixelogic, we were heralded as uh, you know revolutionizing digital sculpting, and you know we did things like ILM and tried to do it before us, and they 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 literally declared it was impossible to do, and then. <laughs> Ofer made it happen, right? Because he was singularly focused. And I mean, he had to do his own machine code. He wrote, rewrote the memory management routines for Windows. You know, he did a lot of work to make that happen. Stuff they probably would have assumed wasn't. But uh, the downside, the, the dark side to that is people don't realize that thousands of traditional sculptors lost their jobs. Yeah. You know, and that's, uh, they just flat lost their jobs. That was it. And there's literally nothing to do. And if you, you know, there were several that went to go work at the U.S. Mint, but the U.S. Mint has like six people and that's it. Yeah, if you work at the U.S. Mint, you're gold, but if not, you're screwed. I think it's scary. I mean, even even what I do could very well disappear. I, I generate ideas. I take an idea for a game and I do a few combinations. I, I'm fast, but like in a week, I can do maybe four variations of a game, and mm-hmm. uh, a, a program could absolutely generate m- much more. And if you get a test group of maybe a hundred thousand people, then you can test these ideas and see which ones stick. And based on that, you improve and improve and improve and refine. And yeah, you could absolutely automate typing. I hope you know there will be. If you look at history and you look at the uh, industrial revolution, I think everyone is happier. Maybe a lot just, you know, you could, you could say that people are happier now that we have machines and you don't have to walk for years uh, to go from one point of the earth to the other. But hopefully, you know, this will create a better world. I have serious doubts about it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I think it's also easy for people to, this whole creativity, the man in the machine thing is I'm traditionally trained as a, like a traditional artist. And that just means for the most part means in 18th century, 16th century methodologies. And uh, it's easy to forget that that's just filled with rules to learn how to draw properly in the 18th century atelier fashion. It's all about rules. And 
you're putting those rules not just in your eye. That's the problem. You know, it's easy to just be able to see it. You got to put those rules into your biology so that you can actually produce it with your biology, with your hands. And you you can, and that takes years, years of time. Yeah. And if I remember right, that's the big argument that people have with the singularity, which is uh, Ray Kurzweiler, which is it at a certain point, the machine outstrips biology in terms of its ability to adapt. It'll be able to run through iterations significantly faster than biology can evolve, right? Yeah. I can see, imagine that not happening at some point in time. You know, like, it seems inevitable to me. Mm. Not saying in our lifetime, but maybe our children's or sometime in the future. That's why destroy them for that. Yeah, so that's why I'm trying to teach my daughter to program. So at least she can put a good word in to the overlords for us, right? Yeah. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah. So talk to me about style transfer markup language. Have you have you been experimenting with that at all? I only heard about it recently with Stadia, but I know it's part of AI and, and whatnot. Yeah. Is that I tried a few things, but like uh, on the internet, like as a as a random user. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw what they did with, with Stadia and so far I'm not convinced. Yeah. I wasn't convinced either. I, I think I think it's the very start. It's the very first thing. And I think what they showed on stage was very much just for show, you know, like uh, right. very extreme so that people understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. But if you a bit more subtly, you could take a game like Borderlands and serve that to tons of players and figure out what width of the outlines works best. Right. Say, hey, do we need more contrast? And you don't even have to ask people what they think. You can just say, um, hey, uh, we noticed that if the, the outlines are you know, five pixels wide instead of four, then people stay for five minutes more. Unlikely, but you, know, you get the idea. So with that kind of access to data, and I mean, it's, it's already in place. You know, that, that, that's how Facebook works. And every, every game company does that as well. You collect data and how well uh, you act on that depends on the company. But collecting the data is, is super simple and treating it is becoming extremely simple as well. So you could automate all that and just say, hey, uh, let's have the system try different art styles or variation of the, the art style and transferring stuff. That, that is something that, that is going to happen. It is going to happen to a point, to, to a certain point. And I would recommend if you're starting in that industry or anything digital art related, try to focus on something that is not like just pushing pixels or pushing vertices. I was, I was playing with the new, uh, zero mesh of ZBrush yesterday and, uh, I've been trying to learn how to do retopology myself, you know, like by hand for a while. And every time I get, I get discouraged because I'm like, it just takes too long. And I've seen colleagues do that, you know, that's their job. And when I see the latest version of it, I'm like, wow, that you're, you're going to be out of, out of job soon, you know, if you just do that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Getting yes. to a point where I don't have high expectations for my retopology on my 3D models myself, but uh, I, I'm at a point where clicking a button does it well enough for me. And I'm, I'm honestly actually surprised it didn't get to that point earlier because it, it looks very mechanical to me, but I'm pretty sure I'm missing the, the point on retopology and have all of that. But 
yeah, you, you should you should focus on something. Try try to find something that a machine won't be able to do in the next ten years. Yeah, well, you know, along those Maybe lines, because I, I know we took this conversation down a little bit of a dark path, so we can take a we can take a breath <laughs> because I think that that reminds us of what's of the real thing, right? Like, of course, there's a threat to the job, but I mean, there's a there's a threat to the immediate jobs. You know, this job could go to India or the India job could come back to the States. You know, it's like I've seen both sides of that conversation happen. You know, I saw EA take an entire studio to China and then be like, well, that sucked and bring it right back. So, you know, that kind of stuff happens and there's threats left, right and center. So those are all part of the deal. But I see here, you know, in your work, and I'll just talk about your work for a second, but you have a firm grasp of what works. And so if we look at the dog, right, the dog, the walking dog, there's gradients, it's color, subtract, simple lines. There's a sense of craft behind that. And the craft is, I think, you know, the thing that really at the end of the day, you know, is so important. And your craft seems to be the juice, like getting people into it. So I'm, I, I really appreciate the insights that you have and in in that you've shared with us. So I want to open this up right now. For everybody, if you guys got some questions, both about the coming singularity and doom, or <laughs> anything I'm, else, and I'm really not on that part. So, um, you know, my opinion is really, uh, I, I wouldn't value it too much. <laughs> yeah, you know, when in my boot camp, for example, we train people not to focus on retopology because I know it's a job that's going away, but it's it's a job that's been going away for ten years. It's just the coders finally somebody mm-hmm. over decided he was going to invest in it. He bought the solution from 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 a, basically a graduate student. And then the graduate students just, they're developing it and making it better and better. You know, Autodesk never cared about us, but, but Pixelogic did. So somebody's deciding to invest in it. But what I tell them is, you know, if you're spending more than a week on the retopology, then you've, you're, you're wasting your time. You know, mm-hmm. automate it, decimate it. Houdini, Houdini is amazing yeah. with decimation. Z-Remesher is amazing, but it doesn't, there's still some cooler things that Houdini can do. So, you know, you've got to get to the craft. You've got to make this thing beautiful because that's what you got to shock somebody into noticing your work. Yes. So what do you think are the ingredients of the keys? Because you've been in games now for a couple of years. Before that, you know, you were in an industry where you, you had to get people's attention fast. What do you think are the keys for artists, you know, the, your colleagues? What are the things that we've got to do to make sure that we're catching people's attention. And, you know, that includes our portfolio for people who are just starting out, things like that. I think one of the, the advice I would give is to try to keep things simple. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that works for prototypes, also works for art. And mm. I see many people, and I, I'm guilty of that a lot, try to compensate for stuff by adding more stuff. Because you don't have iconic silhouettes, you don't have iconic shapes, you don't have something that works. You just add more stuff to it, and you add mm. pouches, you add, you add, you know, random stuff. And um, especially in 3D, you you see people that go with extreme textures and very very detailed tessellation and stuff like that. And um, maybe maybe try to keep things simple. Uh, I think in, in character design, stuff like uh, Street Fighter just really works. You can reduce Street Fighter to uh, a pile of Lego bricks, and it's still valuable and can well, and that's really good character design because it's simple. The Got most it. of you're gonna add, the, the, not gonna work. Got it. 
And then the last question I want to ask you is, do you have any tips, any places, anything you advise for artists who are looking to kind of bone up on the programming side of it, both to speak to the future overlords, but also because I find programming and just even scripting, like we could just talk scripting based so just learning mm-hmm. some Python increases your skill set, your capacity quite a bit. Yeah. Any recommendations? I would say training, like do it a lot. There's no two ways around it. I I think if you want to learn Unity in particular, they have a part of the website called Slash Learn or something, uh, mm-hmm. full of tutorials. I would recommend picking something simple. I see a lot of people trying to get into scripting or game programming that are like, hey, I'm going to do an MMO and it's going to have billions of characters. No, just do the Pac-Man. Even Pac-Man, it's, it's actually quite tricky. Do something simple, a, a ball that bounces and take baby steps because otherwise you're going to get uh, overwhelmed by the size of things. You know, like everything, it has become very complex making a game. If you look at any AAA game, you know, like it's, it's a massive enterprise. So start with something extremely small. It doesn't have to look good. It doesn't have to be impressive. It has to be fun. And you can do that with a few lines of code. So that would be, I think, the easiest way to have a chance to keep going. And if you start with these baby steps, you will get more knowledge that you can apply to your art. I, the, the first few things I was doing with programming and art, I was generating combinations of images. So uh, clients would order you know, avatars for social games and stuff like that. And I would just like do stuff in Photoshop, do like 10 eyes and 10 noses and 10 mouths. And I would just code a program that assembles all that. And I was able to sell that to the same price that I would have if I had done it by hand. But it took only a fraction of the time. And I think you can do that with 3D as well. You can do that with pretty much everything in art. Some would say it reduces the value of the art. But if you like money, it works. <laughs> Fair enough. Is the game I'm looking at here, because I kind of want to build this myself. I want to do a test on, is this something you'd consider limited in scope, the guy who's shooting the blocks, or is this got complexity um, that I'm not seeing? No, I, if, if you're very new at programming, it's already a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a few, if you have maybe a hundred of hours uh, of, of training, or maybe, what, 50 hours, I don't know. This would not be something I would recommend to a complete beginner. Mm-hmm. Try with, like, just have something moving and see how it goes. Because it already implies, you know, projectiles and collisions and yeah. AI. So there's already a lot. If you're completely new, I would say have something, create Mario, you know, like you can move left and right and you can jump. Right, got it. All right, Renaud, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this, man. It, it, it's really great to get outside of our box, and I really appreciate you sharing uh, so what you do. Thanks a lot, Paul, for having me. It was really cool. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com. 
to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.